Wildfires are scorching the West Coast, leaving behind a path of death and destruction. Forecasters call it a bomb cyclone. Winds of 150 miles per hour. Tens of millions of Americans are dealing with dangerously high temperatures, with many areas hitting triple digits. Scientists say climate change is worsening flooding around the world. This is going to get really ugly really fast here. Welcome to the Climate Crisis Podcast. I'm host David Knowles, and I'm here with co-host Ben Adler. And we'd like to welcome the Skullduggery audience to this episode of the podcast. Ben, today you're interviewing activist and environmentalist Bill McKibben. And he's somebody who's, you know, plays a central role in helping mobilize people to the fight against climate change. And I'm curious what you talked about in terms of how the divestment movement for fossil fuels, that is trying to pressure financial institutions, colleges, even state governments to divest themselves of, you know, all investments in fossil fuels. How is that going to help in the fight against climate change over time? Yeah, McKibben has been watching, engaging, and been seeing with increasing frustration how difficult it is to get the political system to deliver strong action to combat climate change by transitioning from fossil fuels to clean energy. And you see that right now. And Congress, with all of the provisions related to climate change that have been removed from Build Back Better, um, which still hasn't passed the Senate anyway, and you see it in the UN Climate Change Conference, COP26, that you and I both covered recently in Glasgow, which McKibben, is, he's among the people who was disappointed by the insufficient outcome there in terms of national pledges to avert catastrophic climate change. So he's increasingly trying to focus on ways that concerned people can force change by demanding it of financial institutions, that if you, if you get investment funds to divest from fossil fuels, and if you get banks and other lending institutions to refuse to lend to fossil fuels, that you cut off the, the money supply to the fossil fuel industry, and you make it either impossible or prohibitively expensive for fossil fuel companies to, because it's very, it's very capital intensive to drill for oil or gas or mine for coal and, and transport it and process it and, and so on. And so that would, you know, just make cleaner sources of energy more and more economically viable as an alternative. Another thing you, you talked to McKibben about in your interview is a sort of a generational aspect of climate change. And he's trying to reach out to the older generation and get them on board with climate change to the extent that the younger generation, as we've been seeing you know, in recent years, has become. Talk about what he told you in terms of how to mobilize older people to take climate change as seriously as the younger generation. Yeah. So you know, he and his co-founders of this group called Third Act that's having a soft launch this week and a more full-fledged rollout early next year are trying to mobilize Americans uh, 60 years old and older to engage in activism on climate change, 
and also on voting rights. They may eventually extend to other issues. Voting rights was the other one that they felt is really crucial at this juncture. And the, the sort of theory is that a lot of older Americans were politically active in their youth and maybe haven't been in recent years, and that the fight against climate change is largely being led by younger people. McKibben, though he himself is 60, co-founded with what was then a group of college students, uh, the group 350.org, which has become a fairly large and prominent climate activism group. You know, and there's Fridays for Future, Greta Thunberg's group, and McKibben says, you know, we can't leave the most important issues in the world We can't assign them to teenagers as as if it was homework. We need to work with them on it. And in particular, if your approach is to try to exert pressure on financial institutions, you will have a greater chance of success if the generations that have the great majority of wealth are involved in making those demands. And so that's, that's the theory. They're organizing online, you know, like everything these days. Um, You know, they have a website where people can sign up and they have videos and they're enlisting older celebrities. And that's what they're trying to do. It strikes me that the problem here has always been how to convince older Americans, retirees, if you look at a state like Florida, people move to Florida because there's no income taxes and they pay less into this into the system. They don't have to pay as much for public schools, et cetera. Is he concerned that there's a a selfishness problem for the older generation in terms of addressing climate change, whereas younger people are going to have to deal with the consequences where older Americans or older people are going to uh, pass on and, and it's not going to be their problem? He certainly didn't use the word selfishness, but I think that younger people tend to be, have higher rates of saying they're very concerned about climate change, that it should be a high priority for the government. And that's generally most observers and I mean, and based on, you know, polls and, and, and interviews and so on, you know, attribute that to younger people when the, you know, reports come out that, that say, you know, something very bad is going to happen in terms of extreme heat waves, hurricanes, sea level rise, whatever it is by let's say 2080 or 2050 or 60, whatever it is, you know, the people who are going to definitely still be alive or ex- expect to still be alive then uh, maybe uh, are more concerned about it. And so McKibben is, you know, talking to generations of people, the baby boomers and the silent generation who are older than them, who you know, mostly have children and in many cases, grandchildren. And he's trying to convince them that the condition in which they leave the world for their kids is uh, just a very important part of their legacy. The first thing I was just wondering about is your thoughts on the recent UN climate change conference in Glasgow. Were you there? And what did you think of how it went and, and the outcome? I was there and I thought it was interesting. I think really what one comes away from it thinking is that we may be nearing the end of the some of the utility of this global process. That is to say, it was pretty clear that, more clear ever than ever, that the limiting factor is what countries are willing to do nationally. The way the script for the conference was written, Joe Biden was supposed to show up with the Build Back Better legislation in his back pocket, toss it down on the table, say, you know, Xi Jinping 
how do you like them apples? And then the Chinese and the Indians were supposed to be spurred into action. Well, this obviously didn't happen. Uh, you know, Joe Manchin, who's taken more money from the fossil fuel industry than anybody in Washington, no mean feat, strips the most important parts out of the Build Back Better bill and then delays the passage of the whole thing anyway. So Biden shows up with essentially nothing and all the air is out of the room even before the conference begins. And, you know, by the end of the conference, you know, the people are insisting that we're going to come back next year and do this all again. The countries will have to put up their, you know, increase their numbers, bring back their new math, show the ambition of their targets. But it's if you look at American politics, for instance, it's hard to see how that's going to happen. Like uh, how in the course of the next year is Biden going to build, you know, get put another piece of climate legislation through Congress? I don't think so. The odds are that Congress, by the time of the next cop, will be run by Republicans or they will have been elected anyway. And some of the same things, I mean, you know, happen in the national politics of China and India and whatever. And it's not completely clear to me that the sort of central negotiations have that much room yet to run. There's all this interesting work going on around them, you know, financial groups starting to pledge this and that, and people reaching agreements about methane and things that are potentially useful, though also big sinks for greenwashing of various kinds. But I came away from it thinking, we've taken this lever marked politics and pulled it almost all the way to the ground. There's not that much play in it anymore. So we better go pull real hard on the other big lever now, the one that's marked money, because I think there's more play left in that. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yep, I can. Um, you know, I've been doing some work around climate policy and domestic climate policy and trying to elect Bernie and Green New Deal and all that. It's all really important. We've also been doing all this work around banks and asset managers and divestment and on and on and on, because that's the other power center big enough to matter. You can think about national capitals and you can think about capital. And those are the two things driving the problem and potentially driving the solution. So for me, I think it's probably going to be a better use of time going forward to focus a lot on those financial institutions and the role they're playing. And the second reason for that is not just that the political process is difficult, slow, and may have reached certain limits. It's that the other thing that was clear from the COP is that activism is becoming extremely difficult across large parts of the world. So the Indian equivalent of Greta Thunberg uh, spent much of the part of the year in jail in India, and they wouldn't give her a visa to come to Glasgow. You know, no one can do organizing in China or Russia or Saudi Arabia. And we have a brief reprieve in this country, but there's no guarantee we're not going straight back. Brazil is a complete impossibility at the moment. Turkey, the same in terms of kind of activism. The good news is that money is still concentrated in places where we can have some effect on it. It's mostly in New York and London and Tokyo, where there's still the possibility for pressure of the kind that movements are good at applying. Speaking of movements and activism, I'm curious what you thought of the activism in Glasgow. I covered all the major protests, and um, there certainly was a lot of energy um, and a lot of, of very charming young people and at them. But I kind of thought that they were lacking in specificity of demands. 
there was a lot of very broad, like, stop greenwashing, stop saying you're doing something and you're not really doing anything, do more, do, you know, and then there were all kinds of people with their, with their specific views, like a whole bunch of people who think that the socialists and stuff who said like, you have to end capitalism as we know it. I did activism when I was in college, labor activism mainly. Mm. And my belief was that it was quite effective what we did, unlike most college activism, where you like protest a war on your campus and like George Bush goes to war anyway, we would do things like pressure the administration of my college to give a fair contract Mm -hmm. in terms of wages and benefits to the food service workers on campus. And that worked, you know? And so you need to, it seems to me, go to an authority with the power to actually do a thing Mm -hmm. and have a very specific request that they can actually fulfill. Yes. And then pressure them for that. And that is the activism that actually delivers results. And I didn't necessarily see that there. So I'm curious to know what your thought is on that. So I think there's different kinds of activism and different goals for it. There's a kind of activism best exemplified by labor negotiation that you describe. And then there's a kind whose goal is to shift the zeitgeist to change our sense of what's normal, natural, and obvious. And that's very important too. When that happens, it resets the conditions under which discussions carried on. So for instance, let's think about colleges. Young people spent much of the last decade mounting this huge divestment campaign on campuses around the world, and it's been extremely effective. We're now at about $40 trillion in portfolios, endowments that have divested from fossil fuel. It's clearly cost the industry a good deal of its social license. And now it's dramatically interfering with its access to capital. Bloomberg was did a story, moved a story during Glasgow saying that the stuff they were looking at because of the number of funds that had opted out of fossil fuels, people were paying three and four times as much for their money to do fossil fuel expansion projects as renewable projects is very powerful and important. But it also had the effect of producing the Sunrise Movement. All the people who came out of the Sunrise Movement cut their teeth doing divestment on campuses. And then they were the ones who came up with the Green New Deal, which evolved basically into the Build Back Better bill. I mean, that's the residue of the Green New Deal. And it was sort of that demand for huge social change exemplified by that Green New Deal campaign and by the Bernie campaigns, which were more or less synonymous, that gave us this moment where we have Joe Biden trying to act like LBJ, thank heaven. And so I I, I think that there are different kinds of activism. But that's what I was saying about the COP process. We may be reaching a point there where it's hard to figure out how to exert leverage. Yeah. Um, So I, But I do think that by far the most astute and important you know, description of the whole thing, and it has great salience in terms of affecting change, was Greta Thunberg's summation of it as a kind of blah, blah, blah event. That really did capture it. And that was the one thing that started to put pressure on the delegations to do anything, you know. So activism, always, you know, building big movements always involves lots of noise and and whatever. But that's all right. That's, you know, that's just the, the stuff thrown off, you know, as, as you go through the process of changing the, changing the zeitgeist. So 
In terms of Biden, you mentioned acting like LBJ, you're referring, of course, to Build Back Better, which has a lot of investment for domestic social priorities, in, yes. including very significant climate change, clean energy investment. Yep. But I'm curious uh, to get your your thoughts aside from Build, or, or in addition, I mean, you can talk about Build Back Better as well, if there's more you want to say on it. But in, in addition to that, what do you think of Biden's record on climate? In particular, I'm curious if you are upset about two things that have recently occurred. Uh, the announcement today about the Strategic Petroleum uh, Reserve release of oil to lower prices and the drilling in the Gulf, the auction for yep. offshore oil that just happened. I was less concerned about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve thing because I think it's kind of noise in the system, temporary, time-limited I think the problem with going opening up more drilling is you're committing to doing stuff for decades to come. I mean, I got arrested a month ago outside the White House protesting the approval of Line Three and uh, other kind of similar things in this. Can you just uh, fill our audience in on on what Line Three refers to? Line Three is the doppelganger for the Keystone Pipeline. This one goes through Minnesota instead of Nebraska, but it's the same size and it carries the same stuff. And it begs the question why, if 10 years ago we understood enough about climate change for Barack Obama to say Keystone is a climate risk that we can't stomach, why now when we know a good deal more about climate risk, somehow it's become okay to stomach the risks of line three? And I thought that was a real mistake. And I think it's a real mistake to do that leasing. I I don't completely understand all the legal back and forth and to the degree to which Biden's hand was forced by the courts or not. And I've heard people argue it uh, both ways. But in historical terms, it's of great sadness. Back on the subject of activism, I read somewhere a couple months ago that you were planning to launch a, well, let me take a step back and actually inform the uh, listener who may not know, you were involved in the founding of 350.org right, which is the climate activism group that is largely youth-led and is one of the first groups that, whereas, yes. that's focused on climate change, not just as a subset of already being an environment. Yes. Organ. 350.org was the first iteration of a uh, sort of global grassroots climate movement. And, uh, you know, and I started it with seven college kids. Uh, so, and because there was an unfilled ecological niche, perhaps, uh, we had great beginner's luck and managed to build out a big global movement. We've organized demonstrations in every country on earth except North Korea. And we were pretty instrumental in things like the Keystone Pipeline fight and this huge divestment campaign. Right. And also you guys do a couple of things. The reason I wanted to ask you about the strategic petroleum reserve and, and the offshore drilling is that uh, sort of trademark of, of 350, as I understand it, is a focus on constricting not just advocating for things like a carbon tax or investment in renewables, but on actually constricting the production of fossil fuels. Keeping it in the ground. That's yeah. correct. That's correct. So that was, uh, it's obviously been a big hallmark and continues to be. But the other thing that 350 has done and that I've been working on a lot is I've, I mean, I'm now an emer- I'm on emeritus status at 350.org. Um, the thing that we've been working a lot on in many different forms over the last few years is to also try and cut off the kind of money pipeline. And that's work that, we're, that that's where we're continuing strongly as we build out this new third act. Right. You right. And what what you guys are doing is what we in in my college activism days called direct action, rather than 
In other words, you try to get you cut off the funding source rather than this bank shot thing of going to the government and saying, please change the. the well, yeah, actually, it's, it's always it's always some of the it's always both. And, you know, so like people are working very hard to get the Biden administration to say, use the powers of the Federal Reserve and the Treasury to force banks to and analyze, assess, and limit their climate risk, which will be a big help. But yeah, yeah. we're also, I mean, I also got arrested in the lobby of the Chase branch nearest the, that was my last trip out before lockdown. Reverend yeah. Yearwood and I getting arrested there to kind of launch this phase of this campaign against Chase because they're the biggest fossil fuel lender in the world. So tell me about Third Act and right. how that, what that's going to be. and what it's Third going Act to be. is for people like me, that is to say over the age of 60, the baby boomers and the silent generation above them. Because it's very clear now that young people are not just on climate, but on other important issues like civil rights, doing what needs to be done. They're doing a great job of organizing. I spent 20 years having people tell me, oh, kids today are apathetic or whatever. I knew it was nonsense then. And, and so it proved to be, as we can tell by Sunrise Project 350, Fridays for the Future, on and on and on. Older people need to not just assign the hardest problems on the planet to 17-year-olds as their homework, you know. They need to start taking real responsibility, in part because we caused the problems and in part because they can't be solved without us. There are so many older people now, they vote in such large numbers, and they control such an un absurd percentage of the nation's financial assets that if they're allowed to just be, you know, become more conservative as they age, they will form an insuperable obstacle to rapid, the rapid change we need. And so we're trying to figure out how to make sure that doesn't happen. And I think it's possible to think this through, you know, this is potentially a very interesting generation. In its first act, it was witness to or participated in profound cultural, social, political transformations, you know, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the first Earth Day. So good on us. Second act, our lives perhaps somewhat more committed to consumerism than citizenship, but that's water under the bridge now. So we emerge into our third act with plenty of resources, about 70% of the financial assets in the country belong to baby boomers or the silent generation. Uh, we emerge with lots of skills and we emerge with grandkids and ready to try and change that legacy uh, so that we're not the first generations that leave the world in a much worse place than we found it. So that's the point of the organizing. And, uh, you know, our, our real commitments are to working on the climate climate and on the political climate. So we're doing a lot of work right now on banks and we're doing a lot of work on voting rights. How do you, you know, organize those people? I mean, it's, not, it's probably not a coincidence 350 started a college campus. How do you find all these senior citizens, get them on your email list, get them doing? Well, that's what we're doing now. And it, and, and it takes a while, but you use all the tools that you know how to do. So, you know, we're out there. We've got wonderful video that, uh, you know, with uh, people that people recognize, you know, Bernie, like 
Ernie and Jane Fonda and Greta and Robin Wall Kimmerer. And, you know, uh, we've got there are assets that this um, generation has that are uh, take it from me. This is the generation that produced the greatest music that uh, yeah. the world seen. And happily, a lot of those people are still alive and and ready to help. And truthfully, there's a fair number of older people who are on campuses of their own now and right. not, not that hard to track down. So that's the job. But, but once you've mobilized them, what are the actions to, let's yeah. say, protect voting rights? Or so, the, so, the, so let's take the bank one because it's yeah. easiest to see. Uh, in fact, we just did test runs of some of this in the very end of October. Uh, the youth of Fridays for the Future Coalition were calling on the banks to stop lending to the fossil fuel industry and doing demonstrations outside a bunch of branches. And they say they're going to be ramping this up in the year ahead. Well, we were very eager to get out there in the street and support them. Because if you're a banker and you look out and you see a crowd of 19-year-olds, that's a threat in one way. You want these kids taking out your credit card. You know they'll stick with it for 40 years. You know you want them coming to work at your bank. You don't want a bad name among 19-year-olds. But if they looked out and see a bunch of 69-year-olds, that's a different kind of threat. They know whose money's in their vault. You know, So it's a perfect example of a place where intergenerational organizing probably makes a lot of sense. When you think about something like voting rights, one of the things that people are doing right now uh, because we don't know how, I mean, this is a, it's a little hard to predict how that particular fight's going to go. It depends to some degree whether, you know, if Joe Manchin's willing to buck the filibuster for voting rights, then it's one question. If he isn't, then it's going to be a longer term fight. So people are, one of the things people are doing that's very beautiful right now at Third Act is writing lots of testimony, as it were, about the first time they voted, about some time in their life when a vote was particularly important and significant. Because I think we may actually have to do the work of re-educating our society on the idea that voting is an important thing and a great value to be protected. For people my age, it's possible that the single best thing that Congress did in our lifetimes was pass the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And it is extraordinarily painful to watch it being dismantled. Right. Can you just talk about, I assume, given that your activism until now has been overwhelmingly focused on on uh, climate change specifically, and that you're uh, broadening it more with this new organization, that it isn't just because you also personally believe in voting rights, but because you think that protecting voting rights is a precondition to getting the climate policy. I think that's, I think that's true, but it's also because I'm not the only person doing this. I mean, we're working on, we have lots of people who are, and they all have you know, mm. a sense of how the world works. So the lead advisor for this project is not me. It's a wonderful woman named Akaya Windwood, who you should talk to from Oakland, who's run the uh, uh, Rockwood Leadership Institute for many, many years and is a huge and important voice for social progress of all kinds. But yes, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think we can do any of the things we need to do if we don't have a functioning democracy. This goes back to the question we began with around Glasgow and why it's a difficult, difficult nut to crack. You know, if we had working representative democracies around the planet, we'd be in much better shape. Instead, we have, you know, true petro states and 
semi-petro states like the U.S., where Joe Manchin is, you know, able to exert extraordinary control over outcomes at the behest of the fossil fuel industry. And you think that, so if you asked me, how do you force, let's say, China and India's or hopefully ultimately, I mean, Russia's a tough nut to crack, but let's say Saudi Arabia or Turkey's hand, or to give you another couple examples that aren't talked about as much, but are pretty bad on their emissions and fossil fuel production in Australia and Canada. Yes, I uh, talk about I, them a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would say, well, the US, you, you, know, you, you get a US government that is really committed to climate action that both in direct bilateral diplomacy with those countries and through the multilateral process of the UN climate change conferences says you have to shift these policies if you want to maintain a good trading relationship with the the EU also could be an important. Yes, um, this is all. And then this is all some of this is going on, of course, but it doesn't completely represent it doesn't completely grapple with the way that power has shifted both in our own country in the difficulty of reaching that kind of Mm -hmm. position, nor the way that power has shifted around the world. Washington no longer rules the world the way that it once did. It's one of the reasons why Wall Street is an equally attractive target, because Wall Street continues to have much of the same outsized global influence that it long has. So this is a question I'm I'm just not knowledgeable enough about global uh, capital markets. Is it the case that China, let's say, you know, that Wall Street can influence China? I mean, China has its own capital. No, like China does. And China, I mean, China is the wild card in in finances. And there's there's a fair amount of uh, Chinese capital floating around this sort of shadow banking system and things that's hard to track. So you can't I mean, none of these none of these solutions get at everything. But you do what you can. And Mm -hmm. what I was saying is most of the money remains where we can get at it. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. This was completely interesting and useful way to um, be thinking. You're raising very deep and interesting questions. And now just remind everybody to tell their parents and grandparents that they, they um, they better do their part and check out Third Act.